3, 1 through 21. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. No, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear it sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? Jesus answered, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen. But you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. For whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and the people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes into the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, City Church Eastside. As Mike said, my name is Matt Ruloff. I've been on staff for the past year and really enjoyed it, learning a lot from Mike and Scott and the rest of the staff. It's been uh, an honor. And as it is now to, to preach, uh, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, we're in a sermon series called Seeing, Savoring, and Showing Jesus. And today, as Marsha just read, we're going to be looking at Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus and how encouraging it's going to be for us. But first, I want to draw your attention to an old 1989 movie called Field of Dreams. 
you're a sports fan, you might like this. If you're a baseball fan, awesome. Or if you're like me and I just like getting hot dogs at the Braves games too, there's, there's room for that. Um, so this Field of Dreams, the premise is that uh, this Iowa corn farmer, which might seem redundant, of course he was a corn farmer, but um, he has this voice audibly say to him, if you build it, he will come. And you're like, what? What is going on? And so he interprets this as, I've got to take this huge chunk out of my cornfield and make a baseball diamond. Okay. And so he does it. And his friends and his family kind of think he's a little crazy. Um, and what happens is these people, these baseball players from like the 1920s come. They're in like 1920s, like old baseball uniforms. are kind of cool. And Shoeless Joe Jackson uh, comes. This guy, Ray, the main character, his dad ends up coming. They have like a weird relationship. And there's awesome redemption in there. But what's crazy is that only Ray and his wife and his kids can see these people from the 1920s at first. Everyone else thinks that they're just looking at this baseball field and like nothing's going on. And they're just like acting like they can see something. Uh, especially this character named Mark. He's like this jerk brother who like wants to sell the land. And um, Anyway, wasn't really interested about the whole baseball thing. At the end of the movie, uh, this character, Mark, he says, what are the players doing on the field? And what, what's happened is he's finally had eyes to see the players on the field. At the end of, at the, end of the movie, there's cars lined up to come see these players play baseball. And friends, this is like the kingdom of heaven. Unless you have eyes to see it, you can't enter it. This is the good news uh, today that we're going to be looking at, that Jesus, uh, that God provides us with new eyes for us. So if you're following along, taking notes, we're going to be three points. Kind of stay Presbyterian here. Um, First one is going to be the need for new life. And the second one is going to be how the new life works. And third, uh, how the result of new life, what that means for us today. So number one, the need for new life. Uh, We're going to look at John 2. Uh, This is just a few verses right before our passage, just to give a little context. Uh, John says this. This is early on in Jesus' ministry. I know we haven't been in the book of John, but this is still very early, his first year of ministry. Chapter 2, he's turned water into wine. Awesome. He's also flipped some tables. So at the end of chapter 2, he says this. John says this. Now when he was in Jerusalem, this Jesus, at the Passover feast, Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Uh, so there's this need for, uh, for rebirth, but John gives us uh, context that Jesus really knows man's heart. We see this in the prologue of John 2, the, the famous, uh, the word became flesh. Awesome. He also says in that prologue, verses 4 and 5, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. John has this theme throughout the book of John. He says a few verses later in the prologue, The true light which gives light to everyone was coming into the world. This is Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. So this is the background of Nicodemus approaching Jesus. This is how John uses uh, darkness and light to describe 
uh, man's heart. So in darkness, we need Jesus. We need the light. And so it's not, uh, it is kind of ironic that verse 2, setting the scene, Nicodemus comes at night. Incredible. Um, You know, Stranger Things, I don't know if y'all have seen that or big fan of that, little fan of that. Season 4 just came out and I saw uh, a friend post on social media like, I can't watch this uh, except anytime at night, except like, you know, during the day because it's so dark and so scary. What's happening here is like, okay, this is really scary for Nicodemus with his social status to come and approach Jesus. And so he's doing it like kind of in secret at night. Um, So that's the context. But let's let's look at verse 1. Let's not skip over who Nicodemus really is. There was a man of the Pharisees called Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. What does that mean? Why is that important? Well, a lot of times if you've grown up in the church— you probably get the sense of like, oh, Pharisee, bad news, bad character, boo. And you might say that for some good reason sometimes. But back then, uh, those who were hearing this and reading this text, they wouldn't have felt that at all. Ruler of the Jews, that meant he was part of this uh, Sanhedrin, which is, he knows his Bible so well that he's on his council to make sure that other people know their stuff really well too. Uh, he's well respected. It, it's hard to make... Uh, Nicodemus into a 2022 person, but I'll I'll try my best. Um, He's probably been to grad school. He's married happily with a lovely wife, has 2.5 kids, is really generous with his time and his money. He's on a board of education. He probably on Saturday helps build, you know, Habitat for Humanity, like builds houses. Uh, He leads DNA groups, community groups. Um, he's fun to be around. He's wise. You get a cup of coffee with him. You're like, oh yeah, this guy knows exactly what he's like. Whoever you're envisioning is like that man or woman who I really respect and look up to. This is Nicodemus. So I don't want you to blow him off as like, ah, he's just a Pharisee. (laughs) He was the ultimate uh, best of the best in a lot of cases. His resume was better than any of ours in the churches would have been 2,000 years ago. This is who we're dealing with, and this is who approaches Jesus. And it's funny because uh, he approaches him, and he's very polite. He's like, Jesus, hey, I know you're from God. You're doing these signs. Um, Verse 2 through 4, your teacher come from God. No one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. And it, it seems like he doesn't even finish his thought. He's about to say something else, and he's like, hold up. No one can enter the kingdom of God. No one can, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Can't see the baseball players on the field unless you're born again. And it's odd because taking a step back and seeing this is the guy with the best resume, and Jesus immediately says, hey, you got to be born again. And Nicodemus, Nicodemus doesn't get it at first. Uh, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And then later, verse 9 and 10, Jesus says, Hey, you're a teacher of the law. Like, your resume is this good, and you're teaching other people about the Old Testament, and you still don't get it? Um, it's kind of a, a, a thing that kind of, I don't know, uh, kind of shaky. When you, when you first read it, you're like, this guy's supposed to know what's going on. And maybe to Jesus, there there are definitely times in the Old Testament where Ezekiel 36 and 37, um, dry bones, they come and 
uh, come to life. There's resurrection. Uh, Jeremiah 31, the new covenant. There's hearts of stone become hearts of flesh. And Jesus kind of calls him out. He's like, dude, you're a teacher of the law? And you don't even get this? Like this idea? And so there's this great need for even the best of the best back then to be reborn and to understand that Jesus is going to give life and give new life. But before we talk about how new life works, I want to mention just the brokenness that we can all feel this past week uh, of the school shooting in Texas. Genesis 3, there's the fall of mankind, and since then, friends, we've been feeling it. You can feel the heaviness of when I just say that out loud, of the children dying. Paul says that in Romans 3, everyone is sinful, and the effects of sin are not just for uh, the Pharisees or uh, the prostitutes and gluttons. Um, it's really affected everything, including the school shooting uh, this past week. So there's a real heaviness and there's a need that I, I want you to feel that I felt just preparing for this sermon that, like, there's a need for us to be born again. And if you're like me, you're probably tempted, especially if you're, you're at church right now, to have a list, a laundry list of things that make you feel good about um, God loving you. Um, for example, my freshman year in college, I remember for the first time uh, doing this read a Bible in a year plan. I was like, I'm going to be so faithful and I'm going to do it. And even when I don't do it, I'm going to, you know, read the last two or three days that I miss. And then it was funny because saying it out loud, I literally had to like check a box and I felt better about myself. I was like, oh yeah, good Christian for the day. And I totally missed the point that it's not about what I do. It's more about Jesus, like what Jesus has done for me. That's why he loves me. And so I don't know if you realize, but the language that Nicodemus uses, he's like, how can, how can, how can I, how can this be? He wants to make, look at my resume. How can this be? How can I, how can this work? There's a need there that can't be satisfied with what we do for our salvation. We can't bring anything to the table. In fact, when we do, we're saying that uh, we deserve God's love in a sense. Just getting the gospel backwards. So we admit that there's a great need, but let's look at how new life works. How Jesus actually explains this. He explains it in a few different ways. First is rebirth. Let's, let's think about birth. Uh, if you didn't know, Jackie's pregnant. My wife Jackie's pregnant. Uh, and there's... Uh, there's a lot that goes into pregnancy, as a lot of y'all know. Um, there's nausea, there's throwing up, there's like sleeping more, sleeping less. Um, you know, going to New Orleans, we are excited to find out like where exactly the room we're gonna, like the birth is gonna take place. But in the birthing process, how much is the baby doing? He's pretty passive, right? He or she? Uh, Jackie's gonna be doing all the work. I'm not gonna be doing any work. Neither is the baby. And Jesus describes birth as this thing is, this is how you're going to be made new. This is how new life is going to come. You're going to be born again. You are going to be the passive baby that new life comes to. You're going to be the passive participant in that. Verses 5 through 8, Jesus says to Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, 
and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Jesus is explaining this, this thing. He says, okay, here's birth. Here's another concrete example, concrete, invisible, of wind. And that's actually something I'm kind of scared about in New Orleans is like, there's hurricanes. And I know we have different uh, ideas about the weather and we figure stuff out 2,000 years later, but who can control a hurricane? I think Jesus' point is the spirit moves and he's uncontrollable. You can't control it, Nicodemus. Your resume can't do it. The spirit will move in whatever way he wants to. Like you've ever been to a campfire and you're on a lawn chair and you're like eating a hot dog or s'more or something and the smoke like gets on you and you're like, all right, now I'm good. And then the smoke goes on you and you're like, oh my gosh, what is going on? I can't control this. You know, Jesus is saying you can't control how the spirit works. And that's not the only thing uh, he says to Nicodemus. He also, so he's talked about rebirth. He's talked about, okay, here's how it works. Here's how the spirit moves like the wind. And here's something that Nicodemus would have immediately understood in the midst of him being kind of overwhelmed and being like, ah, I don't understand this like birthing thing you're trying to say. He makes this Old Testament reference. It's Numbers 21. It's what Marcia read first earlier about the story that the Israelites, when they were in the wilderness, after they've been redeemed from uh, Pharaoh and the Egyptians, and God has been faithful, they went to the Red Sea, and now they're complaining and grumbling, and God sends these snakes And here's an interesting thing, is that he tells Moses to make a bronze snake, to put it on a pole, and lift it up, and whoever has been bitten by a snake will look at it and live. And he's making this reference to Nicodemus, who totally understands and, like, gets that story 100%, knows it like the back of his hand. He's saying, just like that, there was redemption and salvation there. The Son of Man is going to be lifted up. Friends, in that story, it was like, what, what was killing the Israelites? It was the serpent. What saved the, the Israelites? It was looking at their sin, at the serpent that was killing them. And so Jesus says, I'm going to be this idea, that I'm going to be this picture of sin on the cross. It's, it's kind of funny, ironic, 2,000 years later, that we wear crosses and we have crosses in our homes and whatnot, because it's the ultimate symbol of shame in the Roman Empire. It was like, worst of the worst? All right, put them on a cross. And Jesus says, this is how salvation is going to be. Look to me. I'm going to take your sin and take it to the cross. And it's awesome because not only do we get our sins forgiven, but we get his perfect righteousness. A thing called double, double imputation, theologians will say. It's just we get everything that Jesus did well, he did right, and he takes everything that we've done wrong. All the, all the times that we've messed up and made it about ourselves. When we've tried to earn God's love. When you've tried to say, um, yes, I, I am more loved today because I was a good person. Or I served in this way, so God loves me more. All the ways we do our, we sin in ways we mess up. And even the ways we, when we serve and we try to do righteous things for the wrong reasons. Christ takes those things to the cross and bears them for us. Is incredible. This is how new life works. It's not about your resume. It's about Jesus' resume, what he has done for us. And that's incredibly, incredibly good news. Some of you might be coming to church and saying, like, I really want to get my life together before I become a Christian, before I take that plunge. And I'd say, what are you waiting for? 
Look at the thief on the cross. He didn't have his life together until the last few minutes when he admitted his need. A few hours later, he was probably with, you know, uh, the other people scorning Jesus. And then the last second, talk about like a buzzer beater. This thief on the cross is like, actually, yeah. Can you remember me, Jesus? Friends, I don't, th- I don't think you're worse than the thief on the cross. And so if you make it about how good you are, how bad you are, you're missing the point. Come to Jesus now. Another example is Paul. I want to read uh, Ephesians 2, uh, 8 through 9. This is kind of a, a great summary of what I've just said about uh, the birthing process, the wind, the serpent, how Jesus gives us life. Paul says this, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Friends, if you don't know Paul, he wrote half the New Testament and pretty famous even if you're not a christian just as far as like <laughs> the history of the world and what how he impacted it he was helping kill christians before jesus met him on the road to Emmaus, uh or to damascus and he changed his life and so someone who was as learned as nicodemus who had the resume resume of hey pharisee of pharisees doing all the right things for the right reasons supposedly jesus meets him And now Paul says, this is not your undoing, it's a gift of God. He gets it. Paul gets it. Instead of looking at our own character to see or to earn righteousness with God, what if we look at God's character? What is God's character? Verses 15 through 18. This is incredible. And uh, for good reason, verse 16 is the most well-known verse, I think, of, of the Bible. Verse 15 says, whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Verse 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This is his character, that he's giving his only son because he loved the world. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. And this is such an encouraging word too. Verse 17, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only son of God. Friends, if you're like me, you can think of plenty of ways that you've come short, that you haven't treated your spouse right, or your kids, or your roommate, or your coworker. And you might be tempted to think, oh man, I really blew it. Like, what am I going to do now to earn God's favor, or his rest, eternal life? Verse 17, for God did not come to condemn the world. This is good news. This is such good news. Instead, here's eternal life. It's really kind to see Jesus interact with Nicodemus and tell him, explain the one thing that he doesn't understand about the Old Testament is that salvation comes through Jesus. So that's the good news of how this new life works. It's all about Jesus and what he has done. And finally, I'll end with this. this what's, what's the result of this? So what? Well, we just read in Ephesians that uh, there's, this is no cause for boasting. We can't, if it's not about us, it's not about our resume, then we can't wave a flag and say like, hey, look what I did. I'm so good. Hey, I just got ordained last week. I'm like, awesome now. It's like, nope, you're making it about you, man. Nope. 
How do we do that? How do we have hope in failures, um, in times where we blow it? How do we have hope in hardships? Well, I think looking at the epilogue of, of John will give us a little insight. Look at John 19. This is the only other time in John that Nicodemus is mentioned. In verse 18, um, or sorry, verse 19, chapter 19, verse 39, John says this, Nicodemus also, who had earlier come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it with linen clothes with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Why does John include this in his book? Why do I include this in my sermon? Chapter 3, Nicodemus comes at night. He's scared about what social implications he might have as a ruler of the Jews, how he's going to be seen as like, hey, I'm talking to this Jesus character. The end of Jesus' life, he literally just died, and now he's in the light of day. He's a follower of Jesus now. He gets it. Jesus wins. It's awesome because 15 chapters, you don't get anything about Nicodemus. And then it's like a good news. It's like, hey, by the way, what Jesus told Nicodemus, it seemed like he took it to heart. How amazing is that? That when you, you don't make it about yourself and your resume and you adding up or being good one day and not good the other day, you can rest in what Jesus has done for you. That Jesus wins. This is the good news of the gospel of encountering Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, thank you that you are kind enough meet us where we're at, and kind enough to give us the only way of salvation, yourself. Thank you, Lord, for um, your interaction with Nicodemus. Um, Lord, thank you that we can gather from that that it's, it's really not about how much we do for you and try to earn your love. Uh, would you gently remind us that you've done it all on the cross, that it is finished, and that we have new life through you. And Lord, through this, could we help uh, love our neighbors. Would you enable us to love our neighbors uh, better in a way that serves them and um, is not self-seeking? We ask this in your name. Amen. Amen. Now we respond to God's word through confession. And I just want to give you a few moments. Of, I, I love John's of take, becoming.